are deeply privileged and honored to have Professor Randall Krosner uh, here from all the way from Chicago and uh, he's with us uh, today to talk about everything which is macroeconomics and then looking at some of the key issues from the regulatory side. Um, we're very privileged because he has been a, a senior member at the Fed. Uh, he has worked uh, in a lot of interesting organizations and traveled all over the world talking to people and young students and inspiring them uh, with education, learning, and, and focusing on issues also related to jobs in the future. And we'll touch on all of those. Professor, good to see you. I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful to have you here. And I, I wanted to start uh, from uh, 2009. Yes. <laughs> you were at the Fed. Yes. And uh, you were right in the thick of things. Uh, what was your experience? What did, we, what did we learn there? And what are the things that we should be avoiding? Uh, I mean, that would be my first question. So what did we learn sure. and what, what do we need to avoid? Well, one of the things that I learned is just a little bit of humility. Uh, a lot of humility is, uh, is important also, yeah. because markets didn't work exactly as I thought they would. Um, you know, I was a professor at Chicago, yeah. I should know how, how markets uh, actually operate. But in practice, especially during a crisis, mm -hmm. there were a lot of surprises. Markets that should have worked well weren't working so well. And I think one of the lessons is that the boring infrastructure, so the things that don't, get, that don't seem to be that sexy, can be incredibly important. So it's just like the plumbing in the house. Mm -hmm. So you, know, you never really think about the plumbing in your house until it backs up yeah. and then you run because the plumbing is not working and that um, makes the house mm -hmm. unlivable. The same sort of thing happens in the financial markets. It's the infrastructure, so the way in which platforms work, the way in which trading works, that can sometimes get gummed up yep. and that can have big effects in the economy overall. I agree with you. However, what about the sort of the early warning signals? I think there were some smoke signals out there. And uh, was it hubris? Was it arrogance? Was it, uh, you know, everybody was just very comfortable uh, with what was going on because it was, there were good times. Uh, was that the reason why we just didn't just engage? Yeah, one of the interesting things was that, so like the housing market, of course, yep. was one of the areas that a number of people were concerned about. And so we got a false sense of confidence by looking globally mm -hmm. and seeing that, well, the U.S. was actually not an outlier. Yeah. There were many countries that, you know, almost 10 countries, mm -hmm. uh, major countries, that had higher house price growth in the early 2000s mm -hmm. than the U.S. had. So the IMF had done a study, we had done a study, and instead of saying, oh my goodness, there's something, there's a problem in housing all throughout the world, mm -hmm. that there's this common risk factor, yeah. we said, the U.S. is not an outlier, mm -hmm. so we're okay. That was the wrong lesson to draw from that. We should have seen that mm -hmm. what had happened over time is all these global interconnections grew. And so instead of saying, oh, well, we're not the outlier rest of the relative to the rest of the world, the challenge was mm -hmm. the world was um, getting too excited about housing. There was too much frothiness. Yeah. And so then, because of the global interconnections, a weakness in any part then spread throughout the world. The contagion quickly. was very much there. And so yeah. we didn't see that. We had that false sense of confidence that we weren't the outlier, mm -hmm. but the whole world was an outlier, and we weren't thinking in that way. Too big to fail. There are still five big banks at the moment. Uh, what have we learned? Are they vulnerable? Is the economy and, and the environment as a regulator? Do you think that so many major players uh, are we vulnerable? 
So the key thing is to think about the risks of exposure that they have both to each other and to major markets. And that's one of the things where I think we've gotten a lot more focus on. Are we perfect? Certainly not. You know, if we solve every problem, certainly not. But there's a much deeper awareness of that kind of risk exposure across institutions and across markets, and especially globally, than we had from before. So I think that helps to make it less likely but certainly, after what I experienced in 2008, 2009, I never say never about anything. <laughs> yes. Let's take a big world view of things. Um, the, the world economy, the, the GDP is about 80 to 90 trillion, mm -hmm. expected to grow at about 50% over the next 20, 25 years because of all of the, the, you know, the transformation that's going on, the mm -hmm. digital transformation that's going on. Are the regulators ready for that level of growth? And are we? And what do we need to be doing at this point in time? Um, so almost like pre-regulation or pre-legal. In other words, what do we need to be ready for as we look into the future? Well, one of one of the key challenges is a lot of that growth is going to be outside of the traditional large uh, countries. Yeah. It's going to be in China. It's going to be in India. It's going to be in emerging Africa and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And so. That means that a lot of um, regulators and a lot of infrastructure will have to be developed and, and, and get smart quickly uh, that haven't had the experience from before. And so I think that's going to be one of the key challenges is to make sure that the lessons that uh, the major countries are still learning and, uh, and hopefully uh, implementing are, are well portrayed to the rest of the world to make sure that as China grows and becomes important, as India grows and becomes important, they don't um, succumb to the same mistakes that, uh, that others made. Indeed, and uh, by 2050, uh, it is general belief that uh, China would be number one in terms of the size of the economy, India would be very likely to two, the US at number three, and Indonesia mm -hmm. probably at four. And if that's the case, it's a complete tectonic shift. And uh, are the institutions in this part of the world ready for this huge responsibility? So I, th I think the foundations are there, but a lot more work needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And so really um, realizing that they are going to have um, be the biggest economies of the world. Mm -hmm. I don't think they've been thinking of themselves in that way. Maybe China has, mm -hmm. but I think other countries haven't been thinking about that. Mm -hmm. Thinking about uh, the role that they play in the world uh, is going to be something that's very different and making sure that they're well connected into uh, all the global regulatory system to make sure that they have the best learning and cutting edge on, on that, making sure that the <coughs> people who are running the companies and running the financial institutions have had the right um, exposure so they understand risk management, they understand all the things that we teach in our executive MBA and, uh, and as well as uh, our other, uh, uh, other executive education programs, is going to be incredibly important. Yes, indeed. We're at the crossroads of the world in Dubai, uh, yes. north, south, east, west, and uh, and as this, the world is shifting eastwards, this, this is extremely well positioned. What are the kind, what's the kind of advice that you give to the regulators, to the institutions in this part of the world? What do they need to do? Um, and what are the new rules that they need to follow? 
So I think one is think about the infrastructure. So as I said, infrastructure really boring, no one ever wants to think about it, but it's, it's supremely important to make sure that the technological infrastructure is there. One of the key risks that everyone has globally is, uh, is cyber. And so making sure that you are aware of that, that you're ready for it, that your institutions are aware of it and ready for it, and that you're testing for that is extremely important. And sort of seeing those, those global interconnections. Two, no, you can never give the excuse, well, we were an innocent bystander. <laughs> well, the Fed did this, yeah. or the Bank of England did that, yeah. and we didn't do anything wrong and we got hit. Yeah. You can't um, operate that way because you have to understand the context in which you, were, uh, you are operating. Mm -hmm. And if a big player can do something that has an effect on you, you have to be prepared for that. You prefer for them not to do it, and you want to argue to them that, uh, that they shouldn't do it. But you can't just say, if it happens, well, that wasn't our fault. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that's very important. And that's also something that happened among the regulators in the US and other parts of the, um, of the world, was that, oh, well, it was their fault. Or they weren't minding the store. Yeah. Well, that was their responsibility to realize they were interconnected and had those risks. So I say those are the two big messages. Because my concern is, is about contagion. A small country like Greece caused a huge problem. Sure. A small country like Dubai caused a huge problem. And little countries are impacting global economies. And I think that's one of the things one has to be extremely wary of and, and, and have governance systems and institutions that will protect us. Both protect and be aware of that because you can't just say, oh, well, the Greeks aren't doing things right and so it's their fault. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it affects you, it's your fault for not being prepared for it. Yeah. You can try to argue to them that they should change, but you don't have the means to do that. So the right thing to do is prepare. And that's what good risk management is about, understanding whether other people are prepared or not. And mm -hmm. when they're not prepared, you need to be prepared. You need to support them and, uh, and work with them. Now, I'm a futurist, and I've reinvented myself as a futurist. And some people, my family says that I'm sort of hitting midlife crisis, <laughs> so I'm not talking about the future. So as I talk about the future, and sort of we look, and you look deep into, into the future, how do you see the future of money in terms of bits and bytes, in terms of cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. and so on? And nobody really gets it. Um, and, but we all know we're moving in that direction. Um, what's your th thoughts on that? And, and you know, with quantum computing, with, with control trading, all of these kinds of things, um, how do you see that? How do you, you know, connect all of that? Yeah, this is an incredibly exciting time because um, technological innovation is incredibly important for money. Um, when I used to teach about this before we had uh, the cyber, um, uh, cyber currencies and uh, digital currencies and Bitcoin and others develop, I would talk about um, how uh, using gold and silver took an enormous amount of technological development. You had to be able to, to mine gold and silver. You had to be able to weigh it, so you need a system of weight and measures. You had to be able to assay it, that is tell when it's 14 karat gold versus 20 karat gold. The students' eyes used to glaze over and say, that's, that's crazy, that's irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about money today. Yeah. But we have the same kind of technological revolution today as we had back then. It's just as important, uh, or it's potentially just as important as developing a system of consistent weights and measures mm -hmm. and be able to mine and, uh, and assay gold and silver as the internet, as these different uh, platforms for digital currency and commerce. So I think there's a potential for an enormous amount of transformation that can be done both in the private sector and in the government sector. Because mm -hmm. many people have said, oh, well, this will eliminate government currency. It potentially could, mm -hmm. 
but central banks can adopt all of these technologies themselves. And so some of the concerns that people have about cryptocurrencies and that there can be hacking and that there can be theft and there's not good uh, enforcement of, uh, of property rights, well, central banks can, can run the system, they could run the blockchain, they could run the infrastructure, mm -hmm. and so avoid some of those problems, but uh, have some of the benefits and some of the efficiencies that come from using the new technology. We talk uh, a lot about fintech, and, and I, I dare say you encounter it. A lot of the organizations, institutions, are just not quite ready for it yet, both in terms of uh, the legal and, uh, and, and, and the jurisprudence of that, mm -hmm. uh, governance, and just understanding and learning and how to implement that. How do we bridge that challenge, and what do we need to do? What do companies need to do in the meantime? Well, I think you're right. There's something that's outside of what the firms can do, which is the legal infrastructure. Yeah. Exactly how do you enforce contracts? What does it mean in, you know, if, some, if there's a theft on one of these, yeah. uh, these exchanges and it sort of exists not in, un, under one country's particular jurisdiction? And this has been one of the challenges mm -hmm. that some of the, uh, the cryptocurrencies have had. What is the, uh, the relevant jurisdiction? So what you might want to do is be very careful about where you operate. Mm -hmm. You might want to work with the, um, the local regulators to try to build an infrastructure on that so that people know what they can and what can't, can't be enforced. And, and so I think those things are, are incredibly crucial. Then for the firms themselves, be ready to em embrace change. Um, as I, I keep saying, I've recently become a deputy dean, and, yes, and I've been saying that anything that we've been doing for 10 or 20 years, yeah. well, that's an argument against it rather than for it. Mm. It means that we have to think, is this the right thing today or not? Mm. And what often happens at, at firms that have been around for a while and have been successful, is they say, well, mm. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm. Well, if you have that kind of attitude, uh, that means that you may be uh, disappearing pretty quickly. Yes. So you really have to be open to that and realize there can be this fundamental change, particularly in financial services. Uh, one of my professors, one of my gurus, he, uh, Professor Marshall Goldsmith, he talks about what got you here won't get you there. Yes. And, and I think that is where uh, we have this conversation about jobs. And uh, we are used to certain mm -hmm. kinds of jobs, but those jobs won't exist in the future. Um, in the longer term, I think AI, robotics, machine learning will probably create more jobs than, than we lose. But in the interim, there's a lot of disconcert. I mean, there's a lot of concern in the, in yes. the interim. What are your thoughts on that? And how are we looking at middle class jobs? How are we looking at what I would call future jobs? Mm -hmm. So in the short run, um, the challenges have not been nearly as great as people had expected. So if you look at what happened in the US, for example, since the financial crisis, the um, employment rate went up very high and now it's at near record low levels. Right. We've created um, millions of jobs and they've been disproportionately in the lower skilled areas, the areas say, that yeah. people had been very concerned mm -hmm. that technology would completely eliminate. Mm -hmm. So at least so far, that hasn't been the case, there's been disproportionate job creation there mm -hmm. rather than away from there. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's at least good in the short run. But I think you're right in the longer run, this technology is going to, to eliminate a lot of traditional jobs. Now in the past, that has always happened, that's how progress occurs. Before the car was invented, there was the, yes. uh, uh, the people, the blacksmiths <laughs> who were making the horseshoes, and, and so there was a whole infrastructure that was built on that. Yeah. All those jobs were eliminated. Now that took time for that to happen, and so we didn't have you know, extraordinary unemployment in the United States or other countries, we were able to make that transition. The concern here is that what you're gonna need is an enormous amount of increase in the skills that uh, workers have and need that really quickly in order to be able to work with the new technology. 
if this were to be something that will take a very long time, then you can build those skills. And that's something that's gonna come quickly, which I don't think it's coming really soon, but I think when it does come, let's say in a decade, it's gonna come really rapidly. Yeah. And I think the, uh, the skills of many workers won't be there, and that's when the challenge will come in. About your students, um, you're, you're deputy dean, uh, you're a professor, you, you talk to them all the time. And again, going back to the, that all of the skills that we have learned in the past, and we, we talk about uh, numerical and, and, and verbal skills, but now we need multiple intelligences. We need a completely different set of rules of ethics and humanity and values, and particularly in the financial and economic world, because more and more as AI is becoming stronger, this is becoming so critical. How do you teach ethics to your students? How do you get them ready for the new world in terms of, of values? And, and to, so to me, that, that is really, I'm, I'm a Harvard grad, so you know, ethics class was interesting, but it wasn't full. <laughs> I think, isn't, what, is, what are your thoughts on that? So um, that's an incredibly important issue, and so one of the things that um, uh, that we've really developed at uh, at, uh, at the business school mm -hmm. is our behavioral sciences area, mm -hmm. and so um, like for example, Richard Thaler just got the Nobel Prize a couple of a uh, couple of years ago, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, one of my colleagues and his colleagues is doing uh, some brilliant work on something called ethics by design, mm -hmm. and so. Because we often think of, well, ethics is about a few bad apples, some people acting badly. And there are a few bad actors, yeah. but that's not what goes wrong. When, when firms do things that are, are really problematic, it could be a few bad people, but there's something wrong with the structure of the institution. And so thinking about the incentives of the institution, thinking about the designs of institutions, of how you get more ethical behavior, you can do simple things like have very clear signs and, um, uh, and slogans that uh, are, are uh, at, people's, at people's desk to remind them. There can be other exercises that are done, but it's really thinking very much about the design of the organization of its, itself. Because it's not just a few bad apples, it's the organization. And so in particular, when we're going to be using new technology in these new areas, we have to think very carefully about, well, can the technology be used for good or for bad? Yep. We're seeing that with you know, questions about social media, Excellent. which was seen as all very, very positive, and now people are questioning that. And so we have to be thinking about, well, what are the right incentives for people to use social media? Yeah. At first we were thinking, oh, well, this is great. This is how people provide information to yep. each other and connect with each other. Now we're seeing that some bad actors can use it for other purposes. Yeah. So a platform that was seen as excellent can have some very bad uh, things associated with it. Yeah, so making sure that you get the incentives right and think through that is crucial. And that's what um, Ethics by Design is all about. And that's Brilliant. what we're teaching our students. Brilliant. What are we doing here today? What are you doing here today? And, and what are we trying to achieve? So I'm, I'm here in uh, Dubai because uh, we are trying to recruit a lot more students from uh, UAE as well as from uh, Middle East and Africa for our various programs, for our the exe uh, Executive MBA program, which is in London, Hong Kong, and Chicago. Um, also for executive education, so people don't have the, the time to be able to, to um, take a full degree, uh, they can take shorter courses with us and maybe get something on, you know, a short course on ethics by design, on leadership, things like that, and also recruit people for our, our programs on campus in Chicago. And we've recently started a partnership with the economics department and we're teaching undergraduates business economics. So it's all across the board. We want more people to be exposed to the Chicago way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that could be very helpful for improving business practice and policy as well as government practice and policy. Do you think MBA is basically 
a degree of yesterday rather than a degree of the future, why shouldn't we be looking at management of business intelligence or management of uh, master of business uh, uh, business thinking as opposed to administration? Administration surely going to robots and so on. We need to be thinking, we need to be connecting, we need to be feeling For as sure. opposed to administrating. So how is that shift happening? This is my last question. So our, um, our curriculum is, uh, is transforming all the time. For example, entrepreneurship was something that um, people didn't really talk very much about a quarter century ago. It's now the largest concentration of our MBA students. Mm -hmm. Analytics is something that the students are really focused on, which gets very much to the, the point about um, uh, AI and uh, thinking about uh, cryptocurrencies. It's really amazing to see the transformation, for example, of marketing. Mm -hmm. It used to be uh, about uh, kind of picking out, uh, you know, whether the packaging should be red or blue. Mm -hmm. Now it's all about data. It's all about the analytics. Yeah. We recently started a joint program with the computer science department where people can get a joint mm -hmm. computer science and uh, MBA degree. So I think that's how we're transforming. Even though the name of the degree is the same, the curriculum is, is transforming. And also our students are driving that because they're making other choices. Uh, finance is no longer the largest concentration. Sure. It's entrepreneurship. Super. Professor, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, our company is called MAD Talks. MAD stands for Make a Difference, and we are making a difference. And I, and I can see you're making a difference in the lives of so many people. Really, really happy to have you here. Thank you, sir. I'm Thank so delighted. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you.